0: My name is Eugene Rogan, and as director of the Middle East Center, it is. Thank you. Welcome, Since I've received my applause, there's no need for me to proceed. We can stop now and go on to the next speaker. So
1: then you you said your name, and I have to clap my hand So appreciate it. I'm honored. I honored to <laughs> It is, of
0: course, a great occasion for both the Middle East Center and the College to be welcomed. You, our distinguished guest, and of course, President Ramos Horta, Not just a man of peace, but a son of this college, whose connections to St. Anthony's go back to 1987. You've been a regular visitor returning to our community. And I understand, sir, that the college has followed you wherever you went, particularly the bursar, when it came to your payment of (laughs) battles. In this, St. Anthony's is no more hospitable and no less hospitable a college than any other part of Oxford. But it has a discrete charm of its own, which is that it's, as a college, singularly focused on the issues that unite and divide the world today in all of its parts, in every one of its continents. And in that, I think that the experience of Timon-Leste in its tragedy and in its Renaissance has been a role model and an example that is particularly valid for those of us who work on the Middle East. When we look at the conflicts that are raging across our region, a region with which, sir, you are very familiar from your own visits to Israel, Palestine, and across the region. We are seriously in need not just of figures of peace, but also of the kind of institution building that will make peace a stable and enduring feature of the landscape. This is the singular accomplishment of President Ramos Horta and of his people in Timor-Leste. And we salute you, we welcome you back, and we welcome you all to the Middle East Center. I want to say one last thing before my next round of applause, which I also want to note that this is a building that's also very special for the college. It's the college's newest building. It was designed by a special architect, Zaha Hadid, who was also a friend of this college. Her brother was an honorary fellow of the college. This is a project that she invested a great deal of her own energy in, and she came in May to open the building for us. But well, We lost uh, Zaha 11 days ago. There was a very sudden death and none of us had known that she was ailing and expected this. And uh, so there are many firsts. This is the first major event we've had since losing our architect. It's the first exhibition we've held in this building since it was opened. The idea that the exhibition is one in vernacular architecture, and that it has been so beautifully presented, what I know bring tremendous delight to Zaha and the whole architectural team. So, though we mark her passing with sadness, I think that today is a kind of celebration of what she's given this college, and what you have brought to this building of hers through this beautiful exhibition and the interest that you bring to tonight's event. So on behalf of the college and on behalf of the Middle East Center, I wish to extend you all a very warm welcome, and to ask Matt, too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you, to Eugene. My name is Matt Walton. I'm the Assistant Chief senior research fellow <laughs> in modern Burmese studies here at the college. And I'm speaking today on behalf of the Asian Studies Center uh, at the college. And I, I because President Ramos spent the time here uh, preceded mine by, by many years, um, I had to dig into the archives a bit to find out some, some more about his time here. And he came to San Anthony's, uh, as we heard, as a senior associate member in uh, 1987, in Trinity term of 1987, sponsored by uh, Amer- who is a person who is now emeritus professor, uh, Arthur Stockwin of the Asian Studies Center uh, and the Nissan Institute for Japanese Studies. And I think reflecting the, the breadth and the depth of of Mr. Ramos-Horta's experience and interest, Uh, he was not only presenting at the time or doing research at the time on uh, East Timor, but also planning to do some research on Mozambique as well. Uh, And he had uh, been a part of the Mozambique mission to the UN, uh, also having been exiled to to, uh, to Portuguese colonies in in East Africa for a time. Uh, And so he was here at the college... Also presenting a paper, I believe, as part of a series, a seminar series that the Asian Studies Center sponsored called Revolutionaries in Power, uh, which I think must have been a really exciting series, and I think something we'll have to reconsider, sort of bringing back as a, as a regular focus. Uh, but he's returned, as Eugene noted, several times uh, uh, in 1999 for a seminar series, which was just a few years after he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in '96 also came back for a talk in 2002, uh, and has been a great friend of the college uh, ever since. So we're really honored to have him here. Uh, and to do a final introduction uh, of him, and a more personal introduction, uh, I want to turn it over to another good friend of the college here, um, uh, Dr. Phyllis Ferguson. And you, those of you who were here earlier uh, heard about Phyllis's efforts for in helping to bring about the, uh, the exhibit that we have upstairs, uh, also to put together this entire festival of Southeast Asia uh, in Oxford. And so we're very happy um, to have been able to work with her uh, on this project. And I'll invite her up uh, for a final introduction.
1: Thank you. I'm I'm glad to see all of you here. And thanks, Eugene, and thanks, Matt. Uh, I want to ask, who among us aspire to be angels or saints? In the coded language we learn to speak in times of trouble, the fear of discovery or exposure always haunts us, urging caution, even silence. Among the human rights, freedoms that we hold most dear are freedom of speech and expression, non-discrimination and gender equality. Josie Ramos-Horta's mother stood for these principles. Her son learned them well. What did St. Anthony's in the 1980s provide him? More fierce determination. He said to my young sons on the eve of his departure, when we get freedom or when you become men, come and help me build the nation. He never doubted that freedom was coming. Towards youth in particular, it is this generosity of spirit, this optimism, which has tempered his life and leadership. Always with the people of Timor, now with the United Nations in Africa and in Southeast Asia. There is still more to be done, but with this salute, we welcome you back to St. Anthony's College, Jose Ramos Horta, and you. I would like you to come. To me. In Timor, when you have important visitors, they're presented with ties. Thank you for mm-hmm. And we want to give Jose the ties and the <laughs>
3: Thank you for uh, uh, Phyllis uh, acting uh, warden of the school uh, for bringing me back to uh, Oxford. Uh, I would like first to to, uh, share with you uh, the history of my first association here with St. Anthony and that's through uh, Peter Carey who is there. I first came here in 1984. I was living uh, at the time in uh, New York uh, doing lobby for Timor-West uh, in Washington, US Congress that was my main focus, the UN and US Congress, and then uh, one day uh, some, someone organized a trip for me to come to UK, I came to Oxford, as usual back then. Uh, I would be happy if there were five, six people in the room <laughs> and uh, one of them was Peter Carey. <laughs> uh, and uh, sometime later I received a letter from him, typewritten letter, because there were no computers at the time. He said, uh, I should take time off to come to Oxford to study, to prepare for the future of the timor <laughs> <less."> And uh, <sighs> You know, it was not only the fact that he uh, believed in the possibility of Timor-Leste independence, because for, for me what is uh, most, i you say, heartening and uh, very important value is that one might not believe in the success, possible success of a cause, whatever that may be, but uh, uh, you believe in the cause and you support I, uh, and uh, Peter, not only really believed in the cause, that yet Timoles will be free one day, and that's why he said I should come to start getting ready. Uh, but, uh, and, and he took courageous stand because he, he's very much an Indonesianist, historian of modern Indonesia. He focused on Deep Neuro. Which would be like Shanana Guzman of the Morales, Milka Cabral, of, you know, uh, and the great uh, leaders of Africa at the time, and on the and all of that, uh, married to an Indonesian, and uh, back then, and even in some situations today, if you're an academic, you're doing research on a particular country. The regime might not like what you're doing. Uh, so he, uh, nevertheless, he uh, decided to, speak, uh, to write, to speak out on Timor-Leste, risking his uh, academic career with uh, in Indonesia. So I came here to uh, St. Anthony in 87. Uh, and uh, it was a great uh, experience. I learned a lot and uh, guided by also uh, Professor Arthur Stockwin, uh, originally from Australia, a great uh, uh, human being who, uh, and I attended so many lectures at Nissan Institute. Uh, but uh, as, as uh, think, uh, Warden was saying, uh, at the time, uh, uh, my uh, research work was a lot on uh, Uh, Mozambique Uh, not so much Mozambican politics but I found the Mozambique situation at the time very interesting from a uh, geopolitical perspective you have a southern Africa that was a battleground for US China to some extent uh, Soviet Union uh, as you recall uh, Cuban uh, uh, presence in Angola in a massive way it was you know, it was that Cuban uh, introduction into Angola crossing the Atlantic these uh, guys in uh, fishing vessels and other, with Americans watching because <laughs> the u s knew the world and uh, But the U.S. was not going to do anything because it would risk confrontation with the Soviet Union. So Cuban landed uh, on the eve of South Africa, uh, uh, entering Luanda, the capital, South African troops, uh, but regular South African troops uh, supporting UNITE FNA were uh, 40 miles from Luanda. well, South Africans suffered their first defeat at the gates of Luanda, in the hands of the Cubans. So my interest was on geopolitics of uh, that uh, time. I wrote a paper, uh, disappeared, because you know, there were no computers at that time, so I don't know where the paper is. and It's called Mozambique, diplomatic uh, say chess game, Southern Africa, diplomatic chess game, something like that. Anyway, you might uh, wonder who are these three people standing there, uh, but there's one particular person who, uh, I should introduce you to. That's Peter Gordon, a great uh, journalist. And uh, he was the uh, the first journalist, uh, anchor person, reporter, who did... the. F- film on the massacre of Santa Cruz in 91. It was not BBC, it was not CNN, it was Yorkshire television.
2: I was young, man.
3: Uh, Peter Gordon went to Timor-Leste and recruited a cameraman, Max Stahl. And he went to Timor-Leste at the time under control, clandestinely, and who was his interpreter? A young woman who later became the wife of our first president, Kirsty guzman So it was Peter here who was standing there very discreetly, humbly, but uh, he was incredibly, ca- incredible. Character. Now they are doing a, a story on me for NHK in Japan, which I uh, I don't know how interesting you can make a film of someone talking in a even a lecture, but. So, <laughs> and as the uh, did was, uh, what I was saying, uh, four years after I left uh, uh, St. Andrew, I had uh, a debt here. <laughs> a, I didn't, I didn't have much money. You know, usually I would go to the cafeteria. The cafeteria op- oscillated the, uh, the food between bad and the worst. and uh, sometimes I would go to the high table, which was slightly better, (laughs) but you have to pay. And I I didn't have money to pay, so I just signed. And I left without paying. And uh, I was very impressed with the efficiency of the bursar, with administration here. After three years, I still received... They followed me everywhere. I don't know how they (laughs) do. I was in New York. I was in Washington. Every few months I received the invoice. And then I realized the cost was going up and up. (laughs) And I said, I better pay this now. Otherwise, it'll reach 500 pounds. (laughs) And somehow I paid. uh, uh, But I was impressed with how uh, efficient and confirmed... British efficiency in public administration. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I offer to talk about uh, the title A Dream, From Dream to Reality. The dream was uh, almost an impossible one. Who thought possible? Only incredibly naively optimistic people, uh, all fanatics, I was never a fanatic of anything, whether ideology or uh, religion, uh, uh, <clears throat> that would believe that in particular in those circumstances of the Cold War period, uh, that a country like Timor-Leste would one day be able to be free. And uh, So that was the dream, the dream was realized. realized, through a combination of many factors. It was not only the determination of the people of uh, Timor-Leste. There are many other people around the world, the Kurdish, the Palestinians. Uh, We can be forever heroic without succeeding in freeing the country. Uh, The Timorese are no more heroic than the Palestinians or the Kurdish. You know, just look at uh, those brave women fighters of uh, Kurdistan. Uh, I, I'm uh, their greatest man, their greatest fan in the world. An extraordinary people. Maybe the independence of our Northern uh, Kurd- Iraq Kurdistan is irreversible. But uh, the record is still spread in other regions of. Uh, uh, Middle East, Turkey, now, it doesn't mean they are not heroic. And the Timore- Timorese could be still heroic today in the months of Timor-Leste or in the cities, enduring all challenges, and yet n- not free. It was a combination of tenacity of the people, the faith, but changing circumstances in the world. Not too many people predicted the Asian financial crisis uh, in uh, 97, 98. But there was one extraordinary French journalist and economist. I don't even remember his name. He was doing a profile of me for uh, one of the French television. He followed me in the US and beats in Europe, and uh, then one day he told me, José, the title of the film, and I never saw the film, the film was aired in France, I never saw, the title was Ramos Orta, La Voix de la Résistance, that was the title, I never saw it, I don't know how long the film is. He wrote a version of it for Le Monde Diplomatique, you know, uh, a feature, but he told me one day, if I don't uh, mis- mistake, in March '97, said Jose, the IMF is already gone to Thailand. The baht is going to spin out of control. Soon after, it will be Indonesia and the rest of Southeast Asia. You should seize an opportunity to uh, exploit the situation in your favor. So the financial crisis of '97, which you probably still remember, uh, huge uh, problems first in Thailand, but worst of all was in uh, Indonesia. And uh, that led to the fall of the Suharto regime. In uh, 90, sometime in 95, uh, May 95, I was interviewed by CNN. First time really a major network bother to interview me. It was through a a young American intern whom I met in Geneva. She then ended up working as intern with CNN in New York with Richard Roth, diplomatic license. She convinced Richard Roth that she should, he should interview me and do a program on me more or less. And uh, I was 20 or 25 minutes on CNN. That May 95. In that program I said, within two to three years, the Suharto regime will fall under the weight of corruption and increasing illegitimacy. And then it will be easier to negotiate the resolution of the Timur problem. Uh, Anglo-Saxon media, being Anglo-Saxon media, you have to listen to all sides. So he went to listen to a great Indonesian diplomat, very nice man, very uh, refined gentleman, but not very eloquent uh, in his uh, speeches. (laughs) So, and they asked the ambassador, Mr. Ambassador, journalist asked the ambassador, Mr. Ramuzotto said, within two to th- three years, so will fall, Tim will be free. And the ambassador responded, he, in a um, sarcastic way, well, Mr. Ramuzotto is always too optimistic. <laughs> he was partly right, I was optimistic for the previous 20 years, <laughs> and nothing happened. But I was home. At that time in Lisbon, one evening, when Richard Roth phoned again and said, Jose, did you hear the news? I said, No, Suharto just fell. And we are airing your interview, which you predicted within two, three years. <laughs> uh, and uh, well, it was not a guess, I was not reading from a crystal ball, but uh, at that time, By then, there were abundant uh, news from uh, Indonesia, the region, that the so-called tiger economies, with the exception of some, that were more solid, would um, uh, come down crumbling. And so that's one circumstance uh, uh, that contributed to that. And finally, in 1999, Indonesia accepted a referendum the aftermath of the referendum was total destruction of the, of the country, but the dream was uh, realized. But then comes the harder path that uh, we all experience. One thing is fighting for uh, freedom, for independence, wherever that may be. Uh, you don't have to worry much about delivering goods and services uh, to the people. Um, because someone was someone else supposed to do it, the occupying power. Uh, you don't have to worry about to import, export. You don't have to worry about taxes. You don't have to worry about the judiciary, public administration, uh, taxes, uh, reforms, etc. Uh, we inherit a uh, a situation in 99-2000 where. Literally, you can say, zero infrastructure was left in place, uh, zero economy uh, in place, uh, 300,000 people at least uprooted, more than 200,000 on the other side of the border on West England. Uh, in the first few weeks, few days after the referendum, you travel around the country, the country was empty you didn't see cattle, you didn't see anyone working in uh, agriculture, etc. So the Security Council uh, deployed first authorized an international force that was quickly deployed, then uh, that international force replaced by a UN peacekeeping, you know, more classic UN peacekeeping, and with massive uh, international support. Uh, coordinated by the U.N. and the World Bank, began the efforts to uh, put in place some semblance of uh, state institutions. The Security Council gave uh, Kofi Annan, Secretary General, and Kofi Annan gave the late Sergio Vieira de Mello from Brazil, great Brazilian diplomat, U.N. diplomat, two years to build up Timor-Leste from the ashes of the violence and destruction uh, to a functioning state so the UN can pack and leave. In two years, That's the I was a lonely voice at the time arguing for a five year transition. Lonely in Timor-Leste because my, my own compatriots, comrades, even those two years, some found it too long. I argue with my colleagues, and in New York, I remember telling the then Under Secretary General of Peacekeeping Operations, Bernard Mier from France, telling him we need a five-year. He said, if you succeed in convincing Security Council to have a two-year, you'll be lucky. So we got the two years. Midnight, 19 May 2002, UN flag went down and Timor flag went up. Uh, Who were in attendance of our celebration? Besides the Secretary General of the UN, Kofi Annan, we had uh, leaders from Portugal, Ibu Mega, the newly elected President of Indonesia, came. And I was a sort of a master ceremony Uh, and everything was broadcast live at the time. CNN, BBC, a number of them. And the situation in the country was still, you know, tense. And there were 100,000 people in the improvised uh, area where the ceremonies were to be held. And uh, Shannon Guzman went to the airport to welcome uh, the President and uh, first she had to go to the Indonesian Military Cemetery. And then I was constantly in in touch with the people involved to tell me when uh, the President would approach the stadium. Can you imagine uh, the tension, you know, you would need just one person to shout some obscenity You know, you have this, uh, you know, common in uh, situations, you know. And then everybody else probably uh, do, or others would protest against the ones who shot. So to be uh, And uh, as uh, I was told, she is approaching, two, three minutes, I told the people, Ibu Mega is coming. She is going to join us. Show our Timuris." traditional hospitality and welcome. Uh, The crowd, 100,000 erupted, applauding. There was zero incident. The Australian Prime Minister at the time, uh, John Howard, was there, the Portuguese Prime Minister, and many other international uh, uh, luminaries were there. Bill Clinton was there. Although he was no longer president, he was uh, nominated by uh, President George W. Bush to represent the US. But Bill Clinton uh, played a very critical role in '99. I would say if it were not for President Clinton, nothing would have happened. Uh, everything hin- was hinging on Washington. And uh, <clears throat> I will not go into details now, but uh, so that we save time. Uh, so, we were very pleased that President Clinton uh, came and George W. Bush knew how uh, President Clinton's role it was and it was fitting that he would represent the U.S. Uh, for us, it was not only a matter of uh, building the state. All of us with very little experience or no experience whatsoever, I was known as uh, Uh, having the greatest uh, international experience. Well, but my international experience was uh, quite a lot organizing street demonstrations. (laughs) (laughs) Not exactly diplomacy. (laughs) Not exactly managing foreign ministry. (laughs) And uh, I was very good at that, annoying the Indonesian diplomats, uh, Indonesian foreign minister... uh, Undermining Suharto's so visit, <laughs> wherever they were. And that's not exactly diplomacy, that is street activist. Uh, but I had a reputation as uh, experienced diplomat, so you become the foreign minister. <laughs> well, I have to quickly uh, switch from a street activist to be a, a diplomat. But then, can you imagine other more complicated portfolios? Justice sector. Public Administration, Ministry of Finance, Education, Economy, Agriculture. <coughs> and hardly any of us had uh, experience. So we had a lot of international advisors provided by the World Bank, by different countries. <coughs> Timor-Leste, Dili were full of uh, UN-plated cars, World Bank cars, full of uh, consultants, uh, etc. Many, if not most, will experience in different situations. Uh, others, maybe not so uh, experienced. I remember meeting a lady uh, from the US. She had arrived there completely lost. Uh, she was assigned to be DA, district administrator of a town called Los Palos. And I don't know how I met her, uh, we, I said hello, and uh, she said, uh, she was going to Los Palos. And I said, and where do you come from? So, I, previously I was working in Yosemite National Park. <laughs> so from Yosemite National Park, she was sent to Timor-Leste to manage the Los Palos uh, district. Uh, and then a few years, some time later, was a lady from South Korea. She was a TV journalist in South Korea. And she was assigned to be district administrator for Los Pablos. And <laughs> so I don't know what her real experience is. So we had all of this, but we also had great people who uh, from the UN, uh, headquarters in New York, from the World Bank, member states, helping us put together the uh, skeleton of uh, a state. But same time, as we do this, and take long, we're still doing it, we have to begin looking at healing the wounds of the people. Because the conflict was not only, it was a black and white, that, you know, every Timorese was on one side and the Indonesia army on another. No, there were Timorese who, for a long time, favored the occupation. Collaborated, some willingly, because they believed in it, but others for opportunistic reasons, or others for fear. And so, uh, how, when are you going to start judging people? Judging, first. Next, is to try people. Uh, And how you're going to uh, build a country like ours after 24 years, very divided communities where a lot collaborated and with a powerful neighbor that was in itself in transition from the Suharto regime at the time you might recall 98, 99, 2000, 2001 a lot of violence in Indonesia. In Ambon Christians and the Muslims, in uh, Kalimantan uh, Buginese and Dayak, thousands of people killed the military uh, watching uh, for the uh, uh, possibility of a uh, need to intervene and put an end to that democratic experiment in Indonesia. Uh, <clears throat> and when you deal with a situation like ours, where a government, a, a regime, sent troops to another country supposedly to fight communists and to reintegrate the territory into the motherland, as some of the ideological speeches at the time argue, then one day you tell them you have to leave. Uh, and the Indonesian troops left, angry. Uh, so there was in their uh, on their way there's a lot of uh, destruction there. Uh, And so what should we do? The new Fragile, independent, more or less. Start a process of prosecuting the Timorese who collaborated and an international tribunal on Indonesia. There were no lacking of voices, particularly NGO community, our own, some civil society, Amnesty International, some friends in Washington, in US Congress. Great people who, for years, always were with Timor Leste, were putting pressure on the US administration to uh, push for an international tribunal to try the crimes of the past. I stand here and I say, myself and Shanana Guzman and all others, we said, no, we are not going to prosecute anyone. So we began first a process of national healing, national reconciliation. We set up, with international assistance, a truth commission. Uh, I wouldn't say more than after the South African one. Our was far more uh, forward, uh, more uh, uh, in depth, uh, more participatory, uh, without excluding actual uh, judicial uh, process, but our situation was unique in the sense that the the reconciliation process could not be just exclusive to Timorese. We had to, because at least they estimate 80% or more of the violence were perpetrated by forces that were already out of the country and of another country, so we had a two-track approach. Uh, two-track reconciliation process, a national one, CAVR, the work was exceptional, done by uh, great people, Uh, and then we began the Truth and Friendship Commission with Indonesia. Five commissioners appointed by the Indonesian president, five commissioners appointed by Timor-Leste side, president, and began working focusing on the violence of 1990. But at the same time, uh, uh, we publicly uh, stated our position in uh, opposing an international tribunal, uh, because we believe uh, that uh, in the interest of the region, of the whole region, in the interest of Timor-Leste <coughs> itself, An international tribunal on Indonesia would not serve the cause of peace, stability, democratization in Indonesia and the interest of Timor because it would exacerbate, ignite the divisions in Indonesia. <coughs> and uh, here you have a very proud country, Indonesia, that. Uh, Was forced by circumstance to leave Timor-Leste. We, on our side, Timorese, we never claimed we defeated Indonesia. You never heard in our speeches ever. You can check through Google whether any of us said we defeated them. Well, Timor free because Indonesia, Indonesians, freed themselves. Indonesia went to the streets in Jakarta, brought down the Suharto regime, and they paved the way for dialogue, and And the Indonesians, they showed extraordinary maturity. Even in that fragile situation of Indonesia of uh, 99, 2000, where the president was extremely weak, uh, BJ Habibie, he ordered the troops out and the troops left. Of course, they exercised retaliation by destroying whatever they could but they accepted the result of the referendum. It's not like, you know, they would, they exercise the prison and say, we are not leaving. If they had decided not to leave, who would have uh, gone in in confronting? Because for the international force to go in, it was preceded by negotiations with the Indonesian military so that the Indonesian military would gradually vacate and the international force land. The international force would not land without an agreement that there will be no military clash. And that was success of diplomacy. That many countries particip- participated. But, and who was the main negotiator on the Indonesian side? Someone who later became president of Indonesia. with <coughs> Bambanguidiong. So, he was the head of the army at the time in Indonesia. Three star, four star general. Even before the fall of Suat, he was known as the reformist in Indonesia. And he was the one who negotiated with Kofi Annan, the US, Australia, to prepare the ground for Indonesian troops uh, to leave. So it was, became, you know, part from that period of violence and destruction, it was a flawless diplomatic uh, and peace-keeping uh, uh, operation. Because by the time Australian troops and others land on the ground, there was no longer any armed uh, conflict on the ground. There were some sporadic threats here and there, but uh, the Indonesian forces were completely out. And one thing remarkable, the Indonesian side told the militias, the militias who fled to the other side, do not use Indonesian territory to destabilize your country. So, at the time, many feared or thought, UN, analysts, that the destabilization of or less would come from the other side, because hundreds of militias went to the other side. Our border ever since has never been so uh, safe. Even when we have problems in Delhi, The border with Indonesia was always uh, safe. No um, controversy or any uh, uh, instability in the border. So, all this, and the Indonesian side appreciated the fact that Timorese leaders understood their fragile situation, their challenges in transitioning from uh, dictatorship to democracy. And that's why today, I would say there are no two countries in Asia that have better relationship than Timor-Leste and Indonesia. People-to-people relationship and government-to-government relationship. Indonesia has been our strongest advocate in ASEAN membership. Thousands of Timorese students study in Indonesia, paying national fees, local fees as Timorese, as, as, as Indonesian students. Uh, no Indonesian university cha- charged the students international fee, particularly public uh, u- universities, and uh, and that because the Indonesian uh, and the Indonesian side show a statesmanship in the sense, rather than you uh, exercise revenge even just by ignoring Timor-Leste turn its back? No. They turn around and they walk halfway to meet us and begin the process of normalization of relations. Here you have a, an, a, a, one of the greatest experience of our conflict uh, management of our reconciliation. Indonesian, Indonesia, the largest Muslim majority country in the world, 250 million. Timor-Leste, 97, 98% Catholics. Timor-Leste, victim of the occupation. You would think that there will be a lot of hatred in Timor-Leste towards Indonesia. Well, zero. Uh, And uh, so you have uh, two countries, very different. One victimized, and yet we have an exceptional uh, relationship. uh, As president in 2011 or 10, I don't remember the year, I visited Israel and Palestine. And uh, we, from day one of independence, we recognized the state of Israel and recognized and gave full-fledged diplomatic recognition to the Palestinian Authority. And I visit Israel, invited by Shimon Peres. And I told uh, the Israeli side, because usually the Israelis don't like a visiting head of state, come to Israel, and then you casually go to West Bank. They said, no, you go back and uh, you can come back another time, go to West Bank if you want. I told Israel, come on, you know, (laughs) uh, I want to go to West Bank, you know, be reasonable, big deal, you know. uh, Why such a hassle, you know? I had to go to Paris and then fly to Amman and find my way to West Bank. You know that is just not possible. So the Israelis agreed, first time ever. After state visit to Israel, three days, I gave a public talk at the Hebrew National University. And then the Mossad and Israeli security drove me through the labyrinth and hand me over to Palestinian security and protocol on the other side. On the other side, there were Timor flags everywhere. It was all because it was a state visit, like my visit to Israel. And then when I finished at the end of the day, the Palestinians delivered me back to Israeli security <laughs> and back to I don't remember where the airport is—Tel Aviv or Jerusalem—and I flew out. Uh, and. Uh, Throughout my, I have two public talks in Israel. And one in Israel, the other one in Palestine. I didn't upset anyone. I didn't comment on Israel's or Palestinian uh, situation. I shared the experience of Timor-Leste and Indonesia with our brothers in Israel and our brothers in Palestine. How two countries, more than two decades in conflict, and so much that so many deaths and still living, still feeling, it's still many thousands unaccounted for, even today. And we have uh, this exceptional relationship. The message was delivered this way to Israelis and the Palestinians. But that is possible because the other side, Indonesia, also showed great maturity. Recently, I end uh, this particular part of comments here. Recently, <coughs> uh, well, at the last visit of President Susil Bondanguidiono to Timor Leste two years ago, he and our current president, Paul Mataruak, launched an initiative to set up an international center for uh, dialogue and reconciliation. It's going, hopefully, sometime this year, it starts. It, the headquarters is in Timor, will be co chaired by myself and President Susir Wambanguilion. And that's precisely to uh, share our respective experiences or joint experience with those who might wish to learn from uh, our experiences. We have a joint experience, but also separate experience, in the sense, Timor Leste is not. The same uh, Indonesian experience. Non self governed territory, building state. Indonesia transition from dictatorship to democracy. How you reform the armed forces in Indonesia, the judiciary, how you move from what it was in 98, 99 up to then and to uh, <coughs> And their experience is extremely relevant, for instance, for Myanmar. Every time I'm asked by friends uh, to uh, share our experience with Myanmar, I keep saying, I think more relevant the Indonesia experience. Very similar in that, you know, you have a dictatorship in Myanmar, they had elections, a new democratic government, uh, there, but how are you going to move from uh, the entrenched uh, system of uh, lack of check and balance, of accountability, uh, of justice uh, to uh, an open uh, democratic system? Well, Indonesia is a good example, and uh, and Suchi is doing similar to what the Indonesians have been doing, in the sense. Uh, I I said a number of times, uh, in relation to Myanmar. You know, for those of you who might might not know, the first uh, human rights training program ever done in Myanmar uh, was done by me in 94. July 94, I entered Myanmar illegally to conduct a human rights and diplomacy training program to NLD to Karen, uh, more than 100 people in the jungles of Myanmar at the time I thought to myself I will really serious teaching human rights diplomacy in the jungles what they are going to do with this
0: <laughs>
3: and I was almost caught by the, mili- the Burmese military and uh, but I, I keep telling them the more relevant experience is uh, Indonesia's experience. And Sochi is doing exactly what we have been doing these years, and that is uh, when you deal with such a complex situation, like ours, domestically or within Indonesia, like when you deal with such a complex situation in Myanmar, no matter you're remembering of 40 years of violence. In the case of Kyi, 20 years of incarceration and abuse. You have to work with the other side. You have to gain their trust. You have to understand their fears, their suspicions. You have to be prudent. You have to compromise. Because in the fight for democracy, for human rights, there is no straight line. I keep telling our people, our youth, who often criticise the leadership, particularly myself and uh, Shanana Guzman, we are both always the target of criticism by our NGOs when it comes to uh, the issue of justice. I keep telling them, when we fight for democracy, for human rights, we fight because We believe in that, because of our convictions. But we fight also with our brains. You know when to wait, when to step aside, when to step back. You try to go in a dogmatic, uh, ideological fashion, not understanding the forces that you're dealing with. You jeopardize everything and there'll be no freedom for anyone. So that's what Sushi is doing. And that's what often I say to people. I was in Myanmar uh, a year or so ago, might go again soon uh, upon uh, insist- insistence by them to share um, some thoughts there. And that's what she's doing. And uh, managing a very complex, delicate situation. And that's what our Indonesian friends have been doing, that's what we have been doing. There are no black and white, no straight line. Uh, <clears throat> when I was president, I signed off a lot of, uh, how you say, pardons. And uh, I was criticized by our NGOs. President Ramuzov, he doesn't even read the files. He pardons left and right. And undermining justice. I say, well, I actually read. Mm-hmm. And if the, my the, my greatest sin in life is that I pardon too often, I'm happy to live with that sin. Mm-hmm. My point is, in our uh, we have an incipient, fragile justice system. And uh, to, today, very courageous, many high-profile cases are in court. Sometimes, in uh, determined to show their independence, and sometimes because of the complexity of the cases, their own inexperience, uh, justice might not always uh, serve. And sometimes, uh, a case can be politicized, because the prosecution want to show their work. And because of lack of resources, experience, you might commit an injustice. Or you have commit an injustice, but the other side fight back and expose the weakness of the system. Uh, <clears throat> So in my as, well as President, because the Constitution gives the President prerogative to provide uh, pardons. And usually it is the, uh, the prison system that's sent to the Minister of Justice, the Minister to the Council of Ministers, and then to the President for final decision on uh, pardons. Well, because of our uh, great efficient administration, well maybe the prisons are forgotten. So I took initiative, I would send my people, go to the prison, check who is there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they would come to say, so I would take the initiative. People would complain. That is not his job. Yeah, it is my job. Because the people are there. And they should be uh, tried or should be out by now and they are still there. And, and this is part of the whole uh, extremely difficult process of uh, from from drip from dream delivering to the people the country is doing reasonably well economically the last few years a lot of changes uh, what it was 10 years ago 15 years ago or even just 7 years ago what it is today dramatic difference electricity almost of the people have access. Those who are not having regular electricity are having solar panels in the villages. At Independence we had only 19 Timorese doctors. Now we have almost 1,000 medical doctors, Timorese. Most of them trained by Cuba. 700 we sent to Cuba to study medicine. All paid by Cuba. 400 have been trained in Timor most already finished, so about 1,000, maybe more. School enrollment went from 60-something percent in 78 years ago to now more than 93 percent. Well, but it doesn't mean that, you know, because we have 1,000 doctors, we have a great school enrollment, everything is running well. No, it, uh, it is not. The figures alone do not tell the whole story. There are still problems. When I was in Guinea-Bissau, the President of Guinea-Bissau, I was there as special president Secretary General. The then President of Guinea-Bissau used to tell me, President Ramos Horta, here in Guinea-Bissau, everybody wants to be a minister, because <coughs> you are a minister, you need only six months, you steal enough, you make a, build a palatial <laughs> home. I would tell the President, I say, President, in Timor-Leste we also steal. But we're still slowly over five years. <laughs> <laughs> so, you people in GitHub are more efficient, faster. And when I went back home, I shared this joke with my Timorese brothers and sisters. They told me, President, you are outdated. Now we're stealing millions. <laughs> Corruption is a real challenge in Timor Leste. But the good thing, as I mentioned, the, the courts are cracking down on the on the abuses by the people, by officials and so on. The country has been living off oil primarily. God gave us in a very timely fashion, and that's how God makes decisions. By independence day we start having oil and gas revenues. And that's where uh, have been financing our budget, the infrastructure project, but oil price dramatically down. So Timor-Leste has to be, has some uh, reserves, a bit over $16 billion accumulated in, in over only like seven years and thanks to the government, uh, particularly at the time al Maria Maria al the first prime minister of Timor-Leste, who set up the Petroleum Fund, the Sovereign Fund and uh, thanks to that that today we still have a uh, a lot of savings that can last for several years until such a time that we are able to diversify the economy. So that's where we are, 2017, we have a new election. The only time in my country when money didn't influence the election was in 2001, 2002. I don't know whether at the time we were all honest Or because no one really had money in 2001, (laughs) 2002, so you you cannot drive anywhere. 2007 elections, I noticed uh, suddenly uh, a lot of rice being distributed around the country bicycles, t shirts, music, all kinds of uh, activities. Suddenly, So, money began to be a part of the elections in Timor-Leste. By 2012, millions of dollars had changed hands. So, Asian-style democracy made its inroads into Timor-Leste. Where did it learn from? Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, Brazil, the US. Well, there is no lacking of good models of, <laughs> uh, uh, and but I I say in a very practical way. For me, I have no ambition that Timor Leste should in the next few years become another Norway or Finland. Only in Norway, Finland no one steals. Elections are absolutely flawless. Peter uh, Peter Thompson here, my friend from Northern Ireland. Probably Northern Ireland is a bit like in South, and more or less when it comes to not clean elections. Uh, uh, probably only uh, in uh, Finland and Norway. But for me what uh, matters is no one is killed because of a damn election. If people want to sell their vote Sell their conscience is their problem. They have an opportunity to vote freely. I cannot stop everybody from trying to not to uh, uh, bribe. Uh, but the first uh, test for us, and this have so far is all these elections so far have been largely f- free of violence. I believe 2017 will be uh, the same. So I thank you for the patience, uh, for listening to me to share the story of uh, Timor-Leste where we are. I'm happy to answer some questions today.